Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Well, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and we're going to continue our Bible study in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 1 today. And if, you, if you're new to Bible stuff, like just know this, the Bible's broken into two pieces. There's like an Old Testament part, which is the front part of your Bible, and then there's a, a New Testament part. It's the last little part of the Bible. So we're in the, the New Testament part. We're sort of towards the back, if you will. And we're reading out of the Gospel of Luke. There are four biographies about Jesus' life. So four different individuals wrote stories about Jesus' birth, some of the things that he did in his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, and they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you know those. So we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. And and as you turn there, I just want to make um, mention of a, a couple of things that struck me this week as I was studying. Before we had the ubiquitous ability to record everything on our cell phones, right? Before we had that opportunity to take pictures of our food before we eat them, that's an odd thing, wouldn't you agree? Right? Or taking pictures of, of every time the dog rolls over in your bed. My daughter sends me pictures of my dog constantly. I'm like, I have more photos in my phone of my dog that my daughter has sent me than I have of my own daughter in my phone. I'm just saying. But before we had that ability to capture things on our phone, we used to have to carry around things called cameras. You might have heard of them. Um, or camcorders to record things like that. But they had limited storage, if you will. So if you had a film camera, before digital cameras even, um, you had a roll of film that had 24, 12, 36 you know, shots on it. You only had those many pictures to take. And so you, you sort of limited the photos that you took, right? You're not taking a picture of your dessert at Panera, whatever, right? Right? Because for, for, you had to develop the photo on its net. Same thing with camcorders. You had these little cassettes that you could record some cool, you know, video footage of. But the cassette was limited. It's 30 minutes long. It's 60 minutes long. So you didn't record everything, just the highlights of your life. You know what I'm saying? And I was thinking about a highlight from my life way back when my girls were younger. So every year, my family would go camping. We'd go to Turkey Run, Indiana State Park, if, if you've ever been there, right? We had a camper, and it was a whole a bunch of fun, right? Went there for years and years and years, every year in the summertime. And this one particular year, my daughters are three and five. And one of the things we love to do when we camped is go for bike rides, because you don't have a whole lot to do, right? You go for bike rides and kill in the daytime and all that. So I'm going for rides, and I'm looking forward to the, the fact when I can um, go out for bike rides with my kids, and they don't have to drag their bikes with training wheels on them. Anyone, right? And they're just a lot slower, and you're like, come on, let's go already. So this one particular summer, my oldest daughter's five. I think it's time for her to ride without training wheels. Okay, right? That's about the age when my dad took my training wheels off. I think that was a gesture of love. Not sure on that, but, but anyways... But he took my training wheels off when I was around five, and I thought she was ready for it. So we're going to give this thing a whirl. We're there all week. We've got nothing else to do. So we take her training wheels off, and my oldest daughter, Riley, she begins to ride. 
without her training wheels. And I'm like, this is liberty. Now we can go do a bunch of fun stuff together. We can ride further. It'll be more fun for us. But little did I know my other daughter, who was three years old at the time, was watching from the shadows. And she says, Daddy, I want you to take the training wheels off my bike, too. And I'm like, babe, you can't even tie your own shoes yet. How are you going to... How are you going to ride a bike without training wells? And, but I said, let's give it a whirl. And so we took her training wheels off. And I'll be danged if my youngest daughter, Reagan, didn't tear out of there with no training wheels and rode around the entire campground. I'm talking everyone was pulling out their camcorders, watching my three-year-old daughter ride by. I mean, she's so tiny riding. So it's those moments that we would try to capture, right, on film. It's those moments that we would try to capture because we, we couldn't do all of that on our cell phones. Um, when we look into the, the ancient writings of the Bible, we see there are a lot of uh, things recorded for us in Scripture, but they were very intentional with how they recorded them. For example, we're reading Luke's Gospel. Before there was the eight and a half by 11 copy reams of paper, before word processors, before all that stuff, when somebody wanted to write something down, they took a quill or some type of writing instrument, dipped it in ink that they probably had to make, right? And they wrote onto papyrus scrolls. It's a, a fibrous sort of paperish membrane kind of thing, but not a lot of people. There was no office max. There was no staples. Like if you had one, you had one. And it was limited in length. It would roll out to maybe 13 feet, 12 feet or something. And when you hit the end of it, you flipped it over and you wrote on the backside. And when you hit the end of it, you're done. There's no more writing. There's no erasers. Okay. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move into Luke's passage today, because Luke is writing something for us, knowing that he has limited space, knowing that he, he can't record everything that Jesus has ever done, but he's intentionally choosing to write some stories down for us, and he's leaving other stories out. I mentioned the four different gospels of Jesus, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. It just means this. They come from the same vantage point. Synoptic, sin meaning the same, like synonym, right? Not cinnamon, synonym, right? And optic meaning view or, or focal point. So synoptic, Matthew, Mark, Luke are the same in a sense. They, they tell sort of the same stories. John's gospel is altogether unique and different. We can talk about that at a different time. But even within the synoptic gospels, Luke tells us some stories that nobody else tells us, that Matthew or Mark don't tell us. In fact, the story we're reading today is one of those. That this story that we're going to finish today, we started it a couple weeks ago. It's about a, a couple named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, right? That they were barren. They didn't have any children. They were older in age. He was a priest, and she was of the lineage of the priest, so he married his cousin. We won't judge. We'll just throw it out there. That's what the Bible tells us, right? So he's married to right, his wife, but they were older, and, and she was barren, and it brought some shame to her because she was barren. Right? Because most people thought, unfortunately, and sometimes still think that way today, that if a person doesn't have a child, there's something wrong with them. We don't believe that, correct? Please nod and say yes. <laughs> oh, please say yes. <laughs> yes, we don't believe that, that there's not something wrong with a person if they don't have a child. It's fine. Right? But they thought differently back then. So anyways, we're introduced to this couple. And the conclusion of that story we read today, but all that to say is why... Why is Luke recording this for us? 
What is in this story that was so inspired by the Holy Spirit and his own idea um, to record this into scripture that it would be beneficial to his friend Theophilus, because Luke is writing this sort of biography about Jesus to his friend Theophilus, and likewise to us, right, to us, so we're going to read it too, but why does Luke think it's important that we read this story? So I just want you to hold that into your brain as we work through this story. And know this, though, that when we're studying the Bible, there, there are questions like this that we constantly ask. So as you learn to study your own Bible, and I'm praying that you're learning to do that, that the Bible is not just a cool coaster for your coffee mug on your bedside table. It's not just a cool piece of decor that you throw in the front seat of your car so all of your friends think you're somehow more spiritual than them. I love you. It's more than that. It's life to us. It means something. And when we read the Bible, it's more than just going through chapter two in Harry Potter or something. No shame on Harry Potter. Right? I'm just saying this book is different. So we read it differently. We study it. And when we study it, it means that we have to ask questions of the text. Like, why did he include that story? Like, what is the audience that the author is writing to? Like, what is the context of all of this story? So these questions we ask, and it, it illuminates some of our understanding in the scripture. So that being said, I uh, gave you a little, bit of, a little bit of review on who Zechariah and Elizabeth was. He was a priest. They were barren. Um, but at some point, when Zechariah is working his day job, he, he's in the temple, and he's doing the incense thing. It's like this thing you get to do once every day. They would put incense in the, the Holy of Holies in the temple. And, and Zechariah gets chosen by Lot to go in there and to do this thing. It's sort of like once in a lifetime opportunity for Zechariah the priest. And so he's in there sprinkling, sprinkling incense on the altar. The smoke is going up, which is a picture of prayers ascending to heaven from the people. And while he's in the Holy of Holies, another person shows up. And this other person was an angel. This angel, his name was Gabriel, right? Gabriel tells Zechariah that God has heard your prayers, that you're going to have a child, and you're going to have a son. And your son's going to be different than all the other sons. He's going to be a Nazarite, which just means he won't cut his hair or drink strong wine or, or uh, beer, probably. I don't know. We call him a Baptist. He's like a Baptist, <laughs> right? So he's going to be like a Baptist. But then he says it's going to be filled with the Spirit, so he's unlike the Baptist in that regard. These are the jokes, people. These are the jokes. Anyways, so the Gabriel, the angel, comes and tells you you're going to have a son. And, um, and Zechariah doubts. He just doubts this. Like, you have no idea how long we've tried to have a child. I'm talking decades and decades of trying, and nothing happens. So even when the angel comes, he doubts a little bit. Because he doubts, Gabriel pronounces a judgment on Zechariah, and he is struck mute. See how uncomfortable that was? That's hard to live like that. So the whole time his wife has been pregnant, right? So he goes back home. She gets pregnant, right? Hallelujah. God fulfills his promise. But he's, he's mute the whole time. He can't say anything. He can't, like, encourage her. He can't, because that's what husbands do when their wives are pregnant. They encourage them, right? That's what we do, right? He couldn't do any of those things. And then we have the culmination of the story here in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. And I'll read the whole thing together and you can follow along on the words on the screen. So it says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, just like Gabriel had said. 
right? And he, wait, where I lost my spot. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Now on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, 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 no. His name shall be called John. And this is John the Baptist, just so you know, if I didn't tell you that part of the story. So anyways, and so they say to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. Strange. So they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet because he's mute. He can't talk. And so he writes this down. His name is John. And it says, and they all wondered, what is going on here? And immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke for the first time in nine months and he begins to bless God. And then fear came on all the neighbors and all of these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Check this out. This is crazy, this child. This whole story is amazing. For the hand of the Lord was with him. So let's pray together real quick. Lord, thank you for this scripture. Thank you that you inspired Luke to keep it in the story of Jesus. And that, Lord, we might benefit from it. That you might show us something here that would be an encouragement to us, Lord. We thank you for everything that you do. And we ask that you be here to help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what a compelling story. Isn't this awesome? I love how Luke tells this great narrative of what's going on. So he tells us here in verse 57 that when it came time for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore her son, that her neighbors and her relatives um, had heard that the Lord had showed great mercy to her. So everyone at this point has this understanding that what has transpired in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life is not natural. It is something supernatural. Again, she was old. She was an, an old woman. I don't know, 60, 70. It's, it's very uncommon, unheard of, honestly, for someone that age to, to become pregnant. So they knew that this was a special moment. And they realized that God had done something to her, that God had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. The questions I'm sure they were gossiping about was this. Can you believe Elizabeth is pregnant? Like, it, um, you know childbirth in those days was a little difficult for people before hospitals and all that kind of stuff. And not, not everyone survived childbirth, and especially an older woman. So they're thinking, is, is she even going to be able to go full term? Is she even, when she gives birth, is she going to survive? Will the baby be okay? You can imagine all of these questions arising. And then when the baby is finally born, they rejoiced with her. Don't we do that when people, like, have a wonderful thing happen in their lives, you just rejoice with them. If you say no to that, you're not my friend, okay? Yes, we rejoice with others because we're happy when, when good things happen to other people, yes? Yes, and they rejoiced with her. They were originally gossiping, wondering if it's going to come true, but it surely does, and it happens. Now, but Zechariah, unfortunately, he is still mute, Possibly deaf. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And he's deaf. And, he, and this happened because of his disbelief in regards to the Gabriel, angel Gabriel. Verse 59, it says, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. This is actually a requirement in the law of Moses. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, that the, the people of Israel are required to take their males to have them circumcised on the eighth day. 
And typically in this moment, they would also name the child. So that's what we're entering into here. There's lots of questions as to why does Moses say, or why does God command Moses to say, circumcise on the eighth day? We don't know. We can conjecture all kinds of reasons. Here's a few I'll throw out there just for extra credit. But there's some idea that, that maybe um, after a, a mom gives birth that she'll need some time to recover. You would agree with that, right? And so after eight days, mom's had some time to recover. She got to go home, watch a little Netflix for a couple days. And then when the priest comes and the doctor comes for the circumcision, she's rested up. Maybe that's it. There's also a Jewish teaching that believes that, that every child should at least have um, experienced one Sabbath before they have their circumcision. So if you wait eight days and the Sabbath comes around every seven days, that the child will at least have experienced one Sabbath. There's some medical reasons too. Maybe there's some type of chemical in the blood that isn't developed at one, two, three, four days, but maybe at eight days, it's a blood clotting thing. This is some argument. All those things possible, I don't know. I don't care. All I know is that this is what Luke is recording for us. And on the eighth day, they enter into a situation, a circumstance that every other person who's had a male child has gone through. This is so normative to them. It, people just, it's like, it's like having a birthday every year. It just happens. It happens. It happens. And so they're entering into this normative thing with the Lord, even though it's a supernatural event. And then something unique happens. It says that they wanted to call him Zechariah after his father. His father's name was Zechariah. Probably his father before him was Zechariah. And so they're just going to name him Zechariah. And that's what they decided to do. Now, know this. This is not Elizabeth and Zechariah saying this. It's the priest and or the doctor and the family and the relatives and the neighbors are all saying this is what we're going to name the child. But she doesn't want that. And she says, no. She answers verse 60. No, his, he shall be called John. And they responded, you crazy woman, paraphrase, but none of your relatives are called that name. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? They don't have any idea that Gabriel, the angel, had told Zechariah that his name should be called John. So when Zechariah's in the temple and he's putting incense on the altar and the smoke is going up and the angel shows up, he says, not only are you going to have a son, but you're going to call him John and his life will be so different than everyone else's life. They don't know that story. They, just are, they think she's just confused. They think, you just don't know how this goes, sweetheart. There's a custom. There's, there's the normative way we do things around here, and you just don't understand that. And I don't need to remind you in those days that oftentimes women did not have a voice, yes? And so they're just trying to bulldoze her over, saying, no, 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 no. Her, his name, rather, is going to be Zechariah. We'll call him Little Zach if that makes you feel better. And she says, no. She knows something that they don't. That God has done something unique. Obviously, this is more than just a supernatural, um, miraculous like childbirth, but the child himself is supernatural. That the child himself is going to do something unique and different. And the name change, the name distinction is probably a part of that. She doesn't have it all fleshed out, but there's something going on here. We're not going to just follow the normal, the customary way of doing things. So she says no. They still don't believe that this is what's going to happen. So they turn to her husband. I love this. They turn to her husband and ask him, what do you think the, the name should be? Now, before we get there, let's do a little work on what names can mean for us. 
So when we read the Bible, we oftentimes see name changes taking place. You guys know the story of the New Testament where, where Jesus has a disciple who's named Simon. And Jesus says, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Peter, which means the rock, which is kind of an awesome nickname to get from Jesus, just saying. Right. But he says, and I'm going to call you the rock. And he says, and, and upon the, the message that you proclaim, I'm going to build my church on that message. And so Simon becomes Peter, which means that I'm going to use you to do something in the world. And names just have this way of, of speaking more than just to our identity, but actually speak to our purpose and our maybe fulfillment in the things that God wants to do. Um, we see in the Old Testament that Abram, and, and Sam was talking about him earlier, his name was changed to Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, and if you know the story of Jacob, and he was a deceiver, was his name was changed to Israel, which means fearer of God, or something like that, or, or mighty of God, something like that. And when you see that name change in Jacob's life, you see from that point forward, something unique and, and different happened in his life. So I get the impression that Mary has this understanding. But we, we could look at that story and go, well, that's just an archaic way of thinking. An archaic way of thinking. Names don't really matter much, or do they? Oh my gosh. I'm going to give you some fun things to do this afternoon. Instead of just like turning mind numb and watching Netflix or some football game this afternoon, just Google this. Are you writing this down? How names affect your success in life. How your name can, can sort of choose your identity. How names can pick your career. There has been studies done that, um, of people named Dennis, Denise, and names like that. More, more than just randomly, they become dentists. Is that weird? Is that weird? That's strange. Dennis becomes a dentist. There was a, a doctor whose, whose last name was Lim, and he became an orthopedic surgeon. Real story, real story. Right. His son became an orthopedic surgeon. His grandson became an orthopedic surgeon. Right. So there's all of that. But but there is this sort of fun uh, story out there that that your name can so sometimes speak more than just your identity of who you are as a person, but what you might actually do in life. And she has this understanding. John means something. I'm not going to go into what it means, but it means something. And, and she has this understanding. Even in our own culture, we see women after weddings. I got to officiate a wedding this past weekend, and a lot of times the question is, should the wife take the husband's last name or not? What do you, what do you guys think? I don't care. Honestly, I don't care. So, no, it doesn't matter to me. I don't really. Some people do. Some people don't. My wife took my last name. It doesn't matter to me. Some people hyphenate the last name, which is even better. But for, for sometimes the ladies, they feel like there's this loss of identity when they take the husband's name. So they hyphenate. I'm down with that. It's fine for me. It doesn't. But you see what I'm saying? Like, this is a real thing even in our own lives. So, so names mean something is what I'm trying to say. And so she says that she wants him to be named John. But they don't care. They just want to ask Zechariah. So they ask Zechariah, it says verse 62, and they make signs to the father. They made signs. Now this, this again alludes to the fact that maybe he's also deaf. Like he can't hear. Not only is he mute, but maybe he can't hear too because they're trying to sign to him, you know, what do you want to name the baby? You name the baby, right? And, and so he, he's, he, oh, I say, oh, what do you want me to call the baby? And he responds, verse 63, and he gets a tablet, right? And he writes down, his name is John. Look at the distinction that Luke records for us. Mary says, he shall be called John. 
That's the story she'd heard from her husband. However he communicated it to her, he said, listen, Gabriel told me we should name him John. And so she said, we should call him John. But when, when Zechariah is asked, he already knows that this is a finished, um, a, a conclusion has already been settled here. His name is John. In fact, when she was first conceived with the baby, his name was John. And his name will forever be John. And John, if you don't know, as the Baptist, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner to Jesus Christ, the Lord. In, um, in those days when a king would go visit another city-state, they would oftentimes send someone before him to declare that the king is coming. And they would, he would travel, this, this forerunner would go before the king and he would travel the same road that the king was going to travel and he would look to see if there's any low places like divots in the road, potholes, like Main Street on Decatur here, and he would, he would fill those things up. Right, He would make, make those low places high and he would take speed bumps and the bumps out of the road and he would level those out. He would make straight the path for the king. And John the Baptist is the forerunner, the one who Isaiah prophesied some 600 years before their birth, before Jesus and John were born, that, that one will go before the other and he will make straight the path for the Lord. John is going to be used uniquely especially for God. He is not going to have the name Zechariah after his dad. He is not going to take his dad's job. His dad was a priest. John is not going to be a priest. John was going to be a Nazarite. I mentioned he won't cut his hair. He's going to be set apart for the Lord. He won't drink strong wine or drink. That he'll, he, he, his dad wasn't a Nazarite. His dad lived in a priestly community with other priests. There's 14,000 priests at about this time when Zechariah was born, right? But John will go live in the wilderness down by the river. That his life will be one of seclusion. His life is uniquely different. And when they called him John instead of Zechariah, they're saying that God's going to do something special for him. And so he gives them the name John. And it says, and they all wondered. John, or sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to come to this understanding that all parents must succumb to at some point is that our children belong to the Lord. So if you have children here, you have to catch this. And if they're younger, they're going to grow up one day, right? That's our hope, right? They grow up and they move out of the house, say amen. Oh, thank you, Jesus, right? They move on. We're so thankful for all of that. But ultimately, parents have to realize that our parents, as parents, our children belong to him. Like we get this opportunity to raise them for a season and we do our best. Say we do our best, parents. We do our best, right? But ultimately, their lives belong to the Lord, who in his sovereignty and his providence will lead them and guide them into everything that he has for them. And I'll just tell you right now that the things that God has for your children are probably way better than the things that you have. For your children. I love you, right? I fall prey to this too, but oftentimes I'm looking to the, the success of my daughters more than I am their spiritual lives sometimes. I say things like, well, that's a smart young man. Maybe he'd make a good husband because I know he wants to go to med school. I want, he's going to be successful, right? All that. And I'm like, he'd be a good guy. I'm like, I'm trying to plan her whole life out, right? And not once am I even concerned about her spiritual well-being. 
It's success. And sometimes we fall prey to that, that we sometimes drive our children into careers that we think is better for them. But the Lord's going, hello, <laughs> hello. There's another way. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they got it. They got it. It's inside of them. This child is special. God's going to do something unique in them, in him. And so we're going to call him John because that's what God wants. And God uses him the way that he wants to. So they break custom. This is where we get to, to lean into maybe what Luke is showing us this story for. There are two people who broke the custom the normative principle in their day to do what God is asking them to do. And I would ask you, in fact, I asked my staff this morning in our little 7.30 a.m. huddle, what are some ways that God has directed your path that might be counter-cultural to the custom of our world? You do believe that when you say yes to Jesus that your life changes, yes, right? And we are now serving a different king, a different master than the world, yes? Oh my God, say yes, or I'm going to start all over. Yes, the answer is yes. Please help me. Oh my gosh, yes. The answer is yes, yes. That's what's happening. And so the, the choices that we oftentimes make will look unusual to the world around us. It says that the neighbors and the relatives and the doctor and the priest, they all wondered what is going on here. How many of your decisions have caused your own family your relatives, your neighbors, to wonder, what are they thinking? I'll give you an example. It's not the best example, and I can say it because my wife's not in the room. Say amen. Yes. So I met Jesus and my wife in the same year. So I was 26 years old, became a Christian in the spring of that year, and was married in the fall of that year. So I'm a young Christian. I'm walking faithfully with him as best I can, going to church as often as I want. You know how it is. You know how it is. <laughs> Right? Whenever it feels good to me, I'll go to church. That's where, how I'm living my life. But all of a sudden, I, the things that I was once drawn to are no longer the same, have the same drawing power to me. The things I used to want to do all night and all weekend, stay up late doing, I didn't want to do anymore. If, you, if this resonates with you, just nod at me and I'll move on. Well, my wedding is fastly approaching and my best mates, my friends, right, the guys in my band are like, hey, Fro, Fro, my name's Fro, they call me Fro. Hey, Fro, we got we to gotta plan your bachelor party and have we got some great ideas. <laughs> Can you imagine what those great ideas are? Okay, I'm not even going to try to tell you with words what they were. Um, let me just say I was in disagreement now with my new Christian heart, my new Christian life, my new Christian identity with the plans that they had for me. In fact, I might even go so far to argue that the Lord did not have <laughs> planned for me the things that they were planning for me. So I ask you, what are some things, some situations in your own life where you're living in such a way that honors God, glorifies him, but maybe causes other people to go, what are you, what are you thinking? One of our, uh, our youth pastor, Ryan, um, this morning I asked my staff, you know, what's one thing that God's maybe called you to that everyone else thought was maybe strange? And he told me today when he graduated college, or high school rather, of the 200 students in his class, he's the only one who went to Bible college. Like everyone else went to U of I or did farming with their mom and dad or whatever, did a bunch of other things. But he, God had called him into something unique and different. 
That, that happens. And this is what I'm trying to say. Gosh, if I just say it, Jeff, say it, just say it, Jeff, just say it. That's what I'm trying to say. Listen, God is calling you into things. And sometimes you don't feel like it's God because it looks different than everything else. Well, no one else is doing that. And listen, I'm not even saying good things and bad things. We're all in agreement that God wants us to do good things and not bad things, right? Good versus evil. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking there are sometimes two good things out there, two of them. And everyone's going this way. And for whatever reason, you choose another way because God is leading you that way. And you don't believe it. You don't think it's right because everyone else is going the other way. I just want to encourage you that sometimes, and Luke is recording this for us to see that sometimes the things that God calls us into will cause people to wonder and to murmur and to gossip and to shame us. I mean, earlier we said that we believe that God still heals today. Can I tell you, there are many people that you would call Christian, that you work with, that are family members of yours, that would disagree on that statement. That God no longer heals. They're cessationists. Won't go into that, but God doesn't do that anymore. He only did that in Bible times, and all of that is the Bible's closed. It's written. We don't need that anymore, right? So you saying that you believe that God still heals will put you in opposition to some people that you know. But I'm telling you, it's right. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's right. God is doing something unique and different. So immediately, it says, after they break custom and name their son John, immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke. For the first time in maybe nine plus months, he hasn't said a word, passed the gravy, nothing. Where's the remote? I walked the dog last night. It's your turn. Right? You can't say any of those. Those are all things I said this past week. I'm just on that. Right? That's <laughs> uh, just throwing it out there. So, but it says he begins to speak. And what's it say he does here in verse 64? It says he blesses God. Think about that. The, your very first words in nine months, I could think of a million things to probably say. And he blesses the Lord. Lord, you're so good. You've removed the reproach, the shame that's been on my wife because of her barrenness. God, you have done something. I mean, like, I mean, all of this and just the praises pour pour out. In fact, next week, um, we're going to read some words that Luke records for us that John or that Zechariah said. It's, It's actually a prophecy. We'll talk about that next week. But there's a prophecy regarding John the Baptist. And he just begins to praise the Lord after his mouth is opened and the neighbors lose their minds. And all the neighbors were talking about these things. And they said, they talked about these things all through the hill country of Judea, verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, man, this child is special. There's something unique about him. For surely the Lord is with him. Two things of import, and I'll close with these things here. That to follow God oftentimes means that we're going to have to move in a different direction than those around us. Okay? I think I made that point um, clear. That is true. We are sometimes going to have to move in a different direction than those around us. And the second point is this, and sometimes they won't like it. But we do it anyways. We do it anyways. That the things that God is calling us into is, is, um, is his plan and his purpose. And we want to follow him anyways. 
there's a, a gentleman named Bob Deffenbaugh. He's a PhD, um, New Testament scholar. I believe he teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. So he's one of them smart guys. You know what I'm talking about? But he was, he was just ta- he, he was writing about this passage and he said this, as we consider the preparation of John for his ministry, I believe that we find a very important principle underscored here that's just as relevant to us in our preparation for our ministry. And, and you're saying, I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. If you're a Christian, you have a ministry. You do. You, you work with people who maybe aren't Christians. You're married to a person who's maybe not a Christian. You lead people in your job that aren't Christians. You have a ministry. And whether you're using words to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, they're watching you anyways. So your ministry is one of truth and hope, or it's one of hypocrisy. You decide. You don't get to claim to be one thing on Sunday when it's convenient for you, and then to live a whole different way Monday through Friday at your J-O-B, yes? And I think the Lord would be talking to some people here. You just, you have a ministry. And I pray that you would just be truthful in it. Anyways, the principle is this. To represent Christ, we must stand apart from sin. We must stand apart from the world, which hates God. And if there's one thing that's characterized John, it was he was a man who was set apart. He was set apart by his calling before his birth, his unusual birth. He was set apart by his life as a Nazarite. He was set apart... By, by his childhood being spent in the desert where he lived apart from the world. with He wore distinct clothing. If you know the story, camel hair. He ate distinct food, locusts and wild honey. He, he was a man who was set apart. And it was his separation from the world which facilitated his ability to see the brokenness and the sins in the world, to stand firmly against them, and to speak out boldly condemning. I read this this week, that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Amen? And I read this, and there's only one way to Jesus, and that is through John. The message of John, that of repentance. That you cannot get to Jesus without understanding that you're a sinner in need of the Savior Jesus. You cannot get to Jesus and the the salvation that he offers us without first understanding the brokenness of your own estate, the brokenness of your own life, the the inability, the inability rather, to change the things into the, to lead the life that God wants you to live. You cannot do it on your own. And that is the message of John. As he cried in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, return to the place where God is because he's sending his savior, Jesus. He's sending his son, the Messiah, the one who will come and flip everything over and make everything right. But you cannot get to him and live the way you're living your life now. To get to Jesus, we go through the message of John. We humbly repent from who we are, go to Jesus and we receive salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the truth of the message that we heard. Thank you, Luke, that we, you recorded all of this for us. That would be helpful. 
What an unusual story to include on a, such an expensive document. I'm sure that old scroll of papyrus that you were writing on Luke, right? But you included this story for us for our benefit. And so for that, Lord, we thank you. God, would you use your Holy Spirit now to empower in us uh, the strength, the faith, the courage to live in a way that looks different than the world around us. You're not asking us to be unkind. You're not asking us to be unloving. Oh my gosh, no. To be unloving, we would be breaking the greatest commands to love God and to love others. But you are calling us to think differently, to respond differently. When the rest of the world loses hope, we're people of hope. When the, the rest of the world loses courage, we find courage in you. When the rest of the world deems some activities okay, we say not for me. And God, your spirit leads each one of us individually. And all of us know how you're leading us. God, encourage us as we go on our day. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 